Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, I hope you get a little bit of a sense of our own enthusiasm for our partnership in Sovereign Grace Churches from a video like that, because uh, those are the guys that we get to meet, you know, and see, and go to college with, and go to conferences with, and be on committees with. So it's just, I don't know, it's just so so great. I'm just glad that we get to give you at least a little bit of a window into um, this extended partnership that we have and how good it is. Um, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, if you have one with you. We are continuing our series on the statement of faith, the doctrines that are in there. Last week, Pastor Todd talked about the Holy Spirit, His person, His work, uh, who He is, what He does. One of the things he said is the Spirit is God and God gives life. So that's, that's the Spirit. Um, today we're going to take that thought further uh, into a specific way that the Spirit gives life. Uh, this section of the Statement of Faith is titled, The Gospel and the Application of Salvation by the Holy Spirit. So that's the longest title in our whole Statement of Faith. Um, and it's also one of the longer sections. It's actually got four parts. The, just that section could be a whole series by itself. Um, So we're not going to go into everything that's there, but I do think we can get at the essence of this section um, this morning. What we're going to do is answer the question, how does a person get in on the salvation that Jesus accomplished on the cross? Or to use the words of comedian Brian Regan, how do I get this goodness in me? He's talking about Pop-Tarts, but... We're talking about something a lot a lot better than that. How do I get this goodness of salvation in me? How do I get in on salvation? And what are the results of it in my life? So we're going to see that the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in this. So the passage we're looking at is Titus 3, 1 through 8. This is a letter of Paul to Titus, who is a guy that he left in charge of encouraging and equipping churches on the island of Crete. And so he's got lots of things to say to Titus as he's building up the elders and and the churches there. And so we get to chapter 3, and he's got some instructions about what he wants him to tell the churches, what he wants to teach them. So we're going to read that section, verses three, uh, chapter 3, 1 through 8, then we'll pray. He says, Remind them... To be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal, of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray. It's so good, Lord, to know that we don't walk through this world blind and not knowing where to go, where life is. You show us in passages like this where it is. It goes through a cross and into an eternity and a hope of, of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And, and you describe for us what, what this life looks like fleshed out in this life in Christ, fleshed out in this world a life that's hopeful and has a trajectory towards glory. And so would you open up our eyes to it again this morning and, and more importantly our hearts to receive it, to receive the encouragement that's here. And so we ask it by the power of the Holy Spirit who we are talking about. Thank you for the Spirit who is with us and is our power for this life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. this passage starts and ends with a description of the Lord's desire for every local church. He wants it to be a beautiful community. A community that breathes life into everyone who is a part of it and is a force for good in the world. Paul says to Titus, remind them. The them is the people in the churches where he's working the people of verse 8, who believe in God. Remind them, he says. Remind them of what? Here's how he starts. To be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That is a description of a beautiful community that is attractive in word and deed. Think about what it looks like in action. It's, a, it's attractive in, in, in its words, in the tone of its conversation. All the talk is edifying, it's all encouraging, it's all constructive, because there's no quarreling. People ready to argue, ready to pick a verbal fight, I have to win, i got to convince you. Rather, people are gentle. They, in their manner, they are approachable. You don't fear having a conversation with this person. Nobody speaks evil of you or others. There's no gossip going around, no spreading of rumors, no trashing of each other's reputations. These are people who show perfect courtesy toward all people, meaning they are polite in their manner, respectful, civil, gracious in how they talk to everyone. Indeed, yes, even those who don't agree with them. (laughs) They can have a conversation about politics or whether or not you should be vaccinated (laughs) without becoming rude (laughs) or judgmental. You can actually leave that conversation feeling respected and heard even though you end up still in disagreement. So it's a beautiful community in its word. It's also beautiful in its deeds. They are ready for every good work. This is a people that you know you can call on when you have to move out of your apartment. (laughs) 
These are people who would shovel the sidewalk of your elderly neighbor that you're trying to reach out to and serve. This is a group of people who would bring a meal to a family who's got illness going on, and they know about it because they're, they're ready to serve. They're, they're thinking about other people all the time. It's a beautiful community. It's attractive in word and in deed, or as Paul says it in verse 8, these things are excellent <laughs> and profitable for people. This is the kind of attractive culture that the Lord intends to build into His church. Remind them, remind the church to pursue this individually and together. Now, when you hear that, I think our natural reaction could be one of two responses. One is, wow, isn't God good that He wants that for us? You know, sign me up. I'd like to be in that community. I'd like to be part of that. I'd like to help that. That's one response. The other, is, the other one is, oh, I am so not like that. <laughs> and neither are most people. This is unrealistic. <laughs> what I love about the Bible is how realistic it actually is. <laughs> the Lord knows we can't do these things in and of ourselves. This kind of community only comes about as the outward fruit of an inner change that God produces in us. It's motivated by the truth of His gospel and enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what verses 3 through 7 explain. That's where Paul is going after this list of exhortations, instructions. He immediately gives the basis for why and how we can do this and have this beautiful community. Remind them to live in this way for or because of some realities that I'm now going to explain. Things that are true of everyone who has believed in Jesus as Savior. And so what follows is the description of the gospel that saves and the Holy Spirit who applies it to us and the amazing realities that are true because of his work. And if you have these things, according to Paul, then you've got a hope of a beautiful community like this one that he's been describing. One that you, all want, you want to be a part of. I want to be a part of it. We want to be a part of this. So let's, let's just see how we can have this, this kind of community. What's, what's going underneath the hood here to bring this about in the world? The first reason, the first reality, is the gospel of our salvation. Why would it make sense to live the way verses, verses 1 and 2 describe? Verse 3, Paul says, For, or because, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Let's stop there. This is a reminder of who we are in ourselves, apart from God's grace. This is who we naturally are in the world. And it's not a flattering picture, is it? <laughs> Slaves to passions? Hating people? Malicious? And when I read that, I want to protest. <laughs> no, that's, that's not me. That's not you. 
I mean, we must be talking about the really bad people. We're talking about the people that make the six o'clock news, the ones who are being carted off in handcuffs. You know, not, not us. We're generally good, right? Well, let's think about this. Let's take the word malice. What is that? Malice is the intention or desire to do evil. It is ill will. Have I ever felt ill will towards someone? (laughs) Oh man, lots of times. Lots of times. I don't immediately have good thoughts about somebody who cuts me off in traffic. Or someone who's arrogant and condescending and doesn't let me finish a sentence. I want to see them suffer. (laughs) I want to see them get something that's coming to them, right? Ill will. What is envy? It's discontent because someone else has what you want and that you feel you deserve. Have I ever been envious? Oh, yeah. In fact, advertisers count on me being envious. (laughs) They just know that when I see a guy happily driving a brand new Jeep out in the mountains, that I'm going to want that, that I need that. (laughs) It's not right that I don't have that. We can go right down through this list, and if we're honest, we discover that in our hearts, if not also in our actions, this list fits us. Even Paul includes himself and Titus in this. He says, we ourselves are this. Paul was like this. Titus was like this. We're all like this in our natural state. Now, I may be going out on a limb here, but you will notice that verse 3 has seven different ways that we sin in our natural state. And one way that others sin against us, well, the biblical In biblical literature, seven is the number of completion or perfection. So maybe it's not a stretch to say that in our natural selves, we're perfect sinners. I mean, we know how to do this. We we are good at sinning. (laughs) Here's the counterintuitive thing about verse 3. This is actually the starting point for having a beautiful life and a beautiful community. Only those who know they are not good in themselves have any shot at becoming good. The principle in Scripture is always that you have to go lower before you can go higher. That's the way of the gospel. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He meant Those who know themselves to be sinners. Those who know they are not healthy. Those who know they need a physician. They need a spiritual doctor. They need someone to come in and give them a cure for what's wrong with them. Those are the people Jesus came for. You've got to go lower before you go higher. You've got to realize verse 3 is me. That's the starting point of a beautiful community. On the surface, you can do a lot of humane and healthy things. But inside, inside of our hearts, all of us harbor evil. And that's what needs to be healed. Without that healing, we are eventually going to destroy community. 
we will stay in verse 3, hated, hate, being hated and hating others. That's where we'll end up. That's where we'll stay. That can't be healed by us. Someone has to come in and rescue us, and that's the good news of the gospel. God himself comes to the rescue. What does God do for perfect sinners? <laughs> he does verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So we'll stop there. Consider the riches of this sentence. This is a game changer. <laughs> this is the game changer. Here we are, passing our days in malice and envy, deserving judgment, deserving some recompense for our intentional evil. But what is God's heart toward us, even while we're in that situation? The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Other translations make it more clear. The goodness and love for man appeared from God, our Savior. Love for man. Love for man is an affectionate concern. It's a loving interest in our lives. It's a loving interest in a perfect sinner. <laughs> Do you believe that God has this love for man? Do you believe He has this love for you? We need to believe our Bibles on this. And that love is what motivates him to do something about our community wrecking hateful ways. God's goodness and love for man makes an appearance, Paul says. It appeared. How? Well, it appears in the person of Jesus Christ. God our Savior in verse 4 becomes Jesus our Savior in verse 6. God becomes man. God comes into this world to do something about our hateful ways. He becomes flesh in the person of Jesus who saves us. How? Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Like immediately just blow that thought out of your mind. You aren't going to save yourself. No, otherwise there is no need for God to enter this world and do something. No, we've already made a mess of it. We can't get our way out of it. We're in a hole, and God has to come. And He does. He comes in the person of Jesus, who then does the most amazing thing. He bears our sin and on Himself, and bears the punishment on Himself, God's wrath on the cross in our place, so that we can be forgiven. Grace appeared. The love of God appeared in this person who is God in the flesh. God gets us out of the hole by Jesus dying on the cross. This brings us into peace with God as we receive it by faith. Paul's talking about those who believed in God, who believe in Jesus as Savior. And that sweeps us up into this experience of God's love instead of the experience of His wrath, which we deserve. You see, there's a sobering reality that God is both loving and just. There is such a thing as wrath for sin. It's the wrath of a judge who is making things right for our crimes. 
And those who don't recognize their sinfulness and humbly accept the cross as payment for their sins will experience that wrath. But here's the thing. Wrath is what is sometimes called God's strange work. Mary and I were talking about this the other day. She's reading a book, Gentle and Lowly, by Dane Ortland, and this subject come up in that book. The, the text is Isaiah 28, 21, where Isaiah speaks of God's judgment on rebellious Israel. They've taken refuge in falsehood, he says, taken shelter there. They've dis- distanced God, don't want him anymore. And here's what, here's what he says, For the Lord will rise up as on, as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to work his work. Alien is his work. Speaking of this, this judgment that he's about to pour out on Israel for their taking shelter in falsehood. He's, he's going to do something about it. He's roused and he's going to take action. But it's his strange deed. It's his alien work. It doesn't come from his heart, we might say. It's necessary, but it's not what he would prefer to do. He would rather save, even if it's just a few, because of his love for man, whom he created in his image, with such potential for beauty and life and good. What's the point in all of this? Why do we need to know how bad we are in ourselves and how merciful God is to those who believe in him. It's because the only motive that can fuel a beautiful life in word and deed is a life that's captured by the grace and the love of God towards you through Jesus Christ. When you're surprised, when you're delighted, when you're grateful and reassured that God is 100% for you despite your faults and your failures. Now you have a shot at verses 1 and (laughs) 2. Now you can contribute to a beautiful community as you're being beautified and and made new by, by these truths, by God's rescue. If you know how good it feels to receive mercy, you do want to spread that to other people. You want people to to get in on, on what you're enjoying, right? I mean, why else do we have to have football watching parties? Why can't you just do that by yourself? Right? You want other people to see and experience what you're seeing and experiencing. Same thing with any good thing, right? Uh, we want other people to be enveloped in that. Same with the gospel. When we're enjoying it, well, why don't you enjoy that with me? You know, why don't I become a means for you to encounter the grace of this God who has pursued me despite who I am? Oh yeah, I want to bring you into that. I want you to experience that through me. It's the motivation for verses 1 and 2, for this beautiful community, the gospel is. So that's the motivation. But Paul doesn't end there. Because you can be motivated to do something and still not be able to do it. Right? Where does the power come from to live this way? After this meeting, if you want to change something about yourself, if that verse 1 and 2 
three kind of convicted you in some way? What if, you, what if now you want to go do something about that? How are you going to do that? On, on Monday and Tuesday, after you've forgotten most of what you just heard right now, and now you've got real life and you're plunged back into all your situations, what's going to give you the power to be any different? <clears throat> the Spirit. The Spirit who applies salvation to our lives. That's where Paul goes next. <clears throat> the same God who saves us from punishment from sins through Jesus also works to change us, to make us sin less, to make us become like this beautiful community described here. He says, God saved us, verses 5 and 6, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What we learn here is that salvation that Jesus accomplished by dying on the cross is applied to us by the Spirit. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. By is an instrumental word. Um, it's, it's, it's the Spirit is the instrumental person of the triune God by whom we receive all the benefits of the salvation Jesus won for us. Um, salvation is a big bucket word for everything that God does to take a person from perfect sinner to forgiven saint and ultimately glorified in heaven. All of that is salvation, and the Holy Spirit is the one, the instrument, by whom we get on that flow and into that realm and into those promises. And so that includes, the Spirit's activity includes both the belief in the gospel itself, which we have to do first, and also the changed life that happens afterwards. The Spirit is going to be instrumental in both of those realms. <clears throat> and that totally makes sense. You don't just believe in Jesus one day, and then after that the Holy Spirit starts to do something. How can you if you're a perfect sinner? <laughs> if all you like to do is sin and you're super good at it and you enjoy it. How are you ever going to believe in Jesus? The Holy Spirit has to do something. He has to come in with the washing of regeneration, rebirth, renewal, and all of this. And then you believe in Jesus and then you are saved. If you believe in Jesus and are saved, it's because the Spirit worked to make you believe. That's the only way a perfect sinner can do something as good as repenting of his sins and believing the gospel. If, without the Spirit, you can't do that. We're slaves, it says. Slaves to worldly passions. Or, or as Ephesians 2 describes us, dead in our trespasses and sins. No spiritual life, no responsiveness to gospel or grace. God has to bring us life. He has to save. He has to regenerate us. That means taking something that was lifeless and putting life into it. He has to renew us. That's a picture of vitality returning. Energy to live a beautiful life. One that's excellent and profitable. Motivated by joy of experiencing God's saving grace. The, all of this happens by the activity of the Holy Spirit. And isn't that exactly how Scripture describes conversion? You must be born again, right? From John. New birth, new life, new creation. 
2 Corinthians 5.17. Here's the takeaway. To try to live the way verses 1 and 2 are talking about requires more than just motivation, even more than gospel motivation. It also requires the Holy Spirit. His regenerating and renewing activity is the wellspring out of which we have all the resources that we need to follow leadership, to devote ourselves to good works, to speak good and not evil, to stop arguing, and to be courteous to all people, even those we disagree with. He's got to be there. And he is. As Todd told us last week, he indwells within the believer. This is how we break free from foolishness, slavery to passions, from hating one another. It's the miracle of being born again and revived and renewed by the Spirit of God who makes it all possible. We could never do this stuff in our own effort. You and I know what it's like to try and try again and fail and fail again and do that endlessly, you know, months and years, right? We know, we know all about that, right? We know there's no inherent power in us to live this life, and God knows that. He's very realistic. <laughs> he says, I won't give you this command and not give you what you need to do it. Here's my spirit. He can do it. He will bring these changes about. The washing of regeneration is this picture of cleansing, removing filth. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He begins this lifelong renovation. Um, it's like one of those home shows, you know, where they always take this old decrepit house, you know, it's just falling apart. And then this team comes in, and then they transform this thing, and, they, and then they pull apart the two great big panels, and, oh, there it is, it's amazing. That's what the Holy Spirit does for your heart. By degrees, there's a definite huge jump from death to life. But then there's also this incremental, progressive change where you're becoming more and more like Jesus and more and more free from your sin. And then verses 1 and 2 aren't threatening. They're like, yeah, that's cool. I like that. That's the direction I'm going in. And consider this, Paul said that the Spirit is poured out on us richly. That's overabundance. <laughs> That's resources in excess of what you need <laughs> to change, to move forward, to, to live this beautiful life. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 All the power that you need to renovate your life lies within the believer because the Holy Spirit dwells within. All the power needed to break free from bad habits, to change destructive thought patterns, to, to find courage in the face of bad news, and to be amazing for Jesus, that, that power is all there <laughs> because of the richness of the pouring out of the Spirit in the believer's life. Nothing held back, not 50% of what you need, <laughs> but like 400% of what you need. <laughs> it's Ezekiel 36, 25, and 27, 227 in action. I love how the Old Testament always points forward to truths that are fleshed out in the New. Here's what it says in Ezekiel 36. This is God speaking to his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. 
And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. (laughs) I will do it. I'm going to cause it. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be working, moving you in this direction. (laughs) Along the way, you'll fight me on this because you've got this attachment to this verse 3 life. (laughs) But you have this new life. You're a new creation now, and I'm moving you in a new direction. That's just God's grace to sinners. The Spirit is renovating our lives. All that we need to move forward and live beautifully in word and deed is given to us. We'll have to say more about like practically how does that actually work. You know, how do we benefit from this? How do we lean into the Spirit and receive all that He gives to us? That'll be in another passage, uh, the section Life in Christ. We'll talk about that later. But just know that that's there. <laughs> He's there. Right? You're not doing this alone. You can't do it alone. You've got to have him, and he's there. God's given him to us. Let's move to the third reality. Supports us in this attractive life that's excellent and profitable. It's the content of our salvation. So we've got motive. We've got the Holy Spirit's power and activity in our lives. But as we're doing this, as we're living out Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, there are other things that need to come back to us. Truths, things that are true because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and that the Spirit has now guaranteed our part of our possession. So what are those things? Well, Paul lists two of them in verse 7. Truths that come back, realities that come back when you're in the daily grind that are the direct result of the Spirit applying salvation to us. The first one is that you have a perfect record before God. A perfect record before God. Being justified by His grace. That's what Paul says. Justified means declared righteous. So it's you before a judge who has in front of him a very long list of every hurtful thing, every wrong thing you have ever done or will ever do. He has that list. He sees it all. He's read every single word. He completely understands more than you do every bad thing about you. He knows every sinful pleasure, every moment of disobedience, every habitual problem, every missed opportunity to do good, every evil word spoken, every envious thought. He knows it all. It's there the judge knows. And then he takes his pen on this list and he writes on it, Paid for by Jesus. Case closed. (laughs) It's a Colossians 2, 13 and 14 truth. God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's what it means to be justified by grace. Yeah. It doesn't mean you don't sin anymore. 
It doesn't mean you're now the perfect person who's just knocking out verses 1 and 2 and and doing all that stuff. No, it means that before God, none of your sins count against you because He counted them against Christ and He has counted Christ's perfect life to you. He switched your list for His list. And He says, now that's your list. The washing of regeneration isn't just the ongoing trajectory towards a beautiful life. It is the statement that because of Christ's death on the cross, you are counted as already having lived that perfect life. To use another illustration, it's like taking a college course and being told on day one, you already have an A. You already have a 100%, no matter what. I wish some professor would have told me that. (laughs) Let's call the course that you're taking from the professor perfect living in an imperfect world. All right, this is the course. And to pass this course, you have to live perfectly. That's what the tests are. It's not things you write saying, I know that. It's what you actually do. So that's the course you're taking from the professor. And the professor says on day one, don't worry about how you're going to do on this I've already given you a 100%. (laughs) I give you an A in perfect living in a fallen world. (laughs) I would think that's a disincentive to do anything, right? But that's the crazy thing about God's grace. It's actually the motivation for doing His goodwill. (laughs) When you know you don't have to, now it becomes, I want to. That is a way more powerful motivation for doing anything. (laughs) Grace to the undeserving is the most powerful stimulus that there is to live a grace-filled and beautiful life. And I can tell you from experience, I tried to live justifying myself before God for 15 years after becoming a Christian. I'm going to obey his commands, and if I obey his commands, then I'm going to feel like I'm accepted by God. I was miserable, and I was making everybody around me miserable. It's only when the truth of justification landed on my soul afresh that I actually started to make progress in holiness. (laughs) So that's the first thing that Paul says, justified by his grace, a perfect record in God's eyes. That'll come back to you and be your help when in the day-to-day of it, and you realize how imperfect you really are, you can right, but wait a minute, but God sees me this other way. <laughs> Here's the second result of the Spirit applying salvation to us. The other thing that's true is that we have an incredible future with God. An incredible future. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Think about that word, Heirs. What is an heir? That's a person who's legally entitled to the property or possessions of another. It's a person who is contractually guaranteed to be owner of that property or those possessions. (laughs) Do you realize that if you believe in God and Jesus, that he has made you an heir of the world? Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, what earth is that? (laughs) He's talking about believers there, and he's talking about the renewed earth, 
ultimately, though there's a sense in which that possession is ours now, whatever resources we need to live this life, you've got them. But there's this other earth, there's this renewed earth, there's this one that's promised to us in the book of Revelation, and it's totally renovated. Sin and suffering is removed, everything is made new and amazing, and everybody you meet is also new and amazing. (laughs) Everybody there in this new earth lives out verse 1 and 2 perfectly. (laughs) That's what you inherit. If you're justified by His grace through faith. Paul said in Romans 8, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's something I have a hard time wrapping my mind around. I mean, heirs of God who created the universe and owns it? I mean, that's a good inheritance. I don't know, just like all the boundaries of that, but that's a pretty good source. (laughs) But heirs with Christ, so everything Christ is heir to, whatever belongs to Him, He's going to share with me. Wow. I mean, what are some of the things that belong to Jesus? Well, His righteousness, for one. He shares that with me. Noah is, spoken of, uh, Noah is spoken of as an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith in Hebrews 11. We get, the, we get to join in on that. We're heirs of the Father's eternal love. He said of His Son, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, if you're in Christ by faith, if you're united to Him by Christ, then, uh, then, then you're heirs of that love, right? <laughs> If God's pleased with him, then then he's pleased with you. (laughs) An immortal body like Jesus, we get that. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. We're we're also going to raise. He was raised, we're going to raise. A renewed world to live in, to enjoy, to explore. An eternity with Jesus in person. No more social distancing between earth and heaven. We get all that. We are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So think about that when you're having a bad day. A day when nothing's going right. You lost your keys and this time they are really not recoverable. (laughs) You get hit with a really large medical bill. Now Now the vacation, now the home improvement project, that's all out the window. A day when your friend disappoints you. A day when your enemy makes your life difficult. A day when you don't experience the beautiful community of verses 1 and 2. What can speak into that day and bring some hope to it? This reality, I have an incredible future with God. I own an estate that this world can't touch. And in a little while, I'll be enjoying it forever with a multitude of people like me who were perfect sinners, made perfect in their experience and with Jesus forever. That's coming. (laughs) That's in the bank. I'm contractually guaranteed to have it. (laughs) So that won't make today's troubles go away, but it will make them more bearable. 
To use an illustration I heard somewhere, if you're on your way to a city to collect a fortune and your car breaks down two miles before you get there, it won't bother you that much to walk the last two miles. (laughs) This life is the last two miles. And when it comes to the inheritance of eternity and the presence of God and all the other people who have been regenerated and beautified by the Spirit, that, that's, that's just in front of us. <laughs> we can handle a couple more miles, right? Let's bring that day into this day as much as we can. <clears throat> God is shaping us as individuals. He's creating a community where the tone of our lives is becoming more and more attractive, more and more gracious, open-hearted, ready to help others, eager to strengthen one another in our words and imparted through deeds. How does it happen? By the life-giving power of the Spirit who opens our hearts more and more to God's grace, to the undeserving, to all the promises that belong to us in, in Jesus. We are justified by His grace. We are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's set so Let's go with that motivation, with those promises and in the power of the Spirit to pursue this beautiful life that the world is looking for. We're looking for it. And God says, you can have it. (laughs) I've given you all that you need and I'll be with you. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray right now against the urge or the impulse that some of us are going to have right now to stay to do this in our own strength like say okay yeah now i'm motivated and now i'm going to change well i pray lord that there's expectation that there's there's joy there's relief (laughs) but not this sense of i've got to do this or else i pray lord continue to just pour out your grace on us You have poured out your spirit richly. Pour him out again and again and again with new fillings of the Holy Spirit, a new awareness of all that's ours in Christ. And I know that by doing that, you will continue to shape us. You will show the world what it looks like to be in the kingdom of the King. We thank you, Lord, that we're swept up into this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's rise and sing this prayer that God would continue to shape us and help the world to see his glory.